This is day four of our daily Bible reading. Today we will be reading Genesis chapters 13 through 16 and Psalm chapter 4. Lord God, thank you for a new day of life. Thank you for fresh mercies that you give us every morning. Thank you for never giving up on us, for abandoning us in our times of need. Lord, we are grateful that you are a personal, communal God one that loves to have relationship with yourself and with us. And as we seek to deepen that relationship, Lord, open our eyes and open our ears to the truth that is in your word and your word alone. Please bless the reading of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him and Lot with him. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. He went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. And the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right, or if to the right, then I will go to the left. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley, and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly, and sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes, and look from the place where you are, northward, and southward, and eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. And it came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, that they made war 
with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shanab, king of Adma, and Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. All these came as allies to the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer, but the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer and the kings that were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, and the Zuzim in Ham, and the Amim in Shaveh Kiriathayim, and the Horites in their Mount Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is, Kadesh, and conquered all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites, who lived at Hazazon Tamar. And the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar, came out, and they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Sidim, against Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them. But those who survived fled to the hill country. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Enur, and these were allies with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods, and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions, and also the women and the people. Then after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours. For fear, you would say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing 
except what the young men have eaten, and the share of the men who went with me. Anur, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them take their share. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look towards the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed four hundred years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then, in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. It came about, when the sun had set, that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Kadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. 
and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. After Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. He went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from, and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress, and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants, so that there will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live to the east of all his brothers. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God who sees. For she said, Have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was eighty-six years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Psalm chapter 4 For the choir director on stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Selah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. Many are saying, Who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. You have put gladness in my heart, 
more than when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Okay, let's review what we saw here in Genesis. So we began today's reading with an illustration of the wealth that Abram and Lot had. For their time, they were exceedingly wealthy. So many times when I was a kid, I would read about Abram living in tents. And when I think about tents, I think of the ones that you would go camping in. But this is a completely different concept. These were large tents that were easily the size of small houses. And they would set them up like compounds to where you had a wandering community whenever Abram wanted to pick up his whole family and possessions and go. That concept makes a lot more sense when you see how many people he trained in military might in his own house. We saw during the Battle of the Kings that Abram had over 300 of his own men that he trained himself that were born into his own family. So that shows you how wealthy he was and how big these compounds were. Perhaps it was my ignorance as a child that didn't see it like I properly should, but in America, it's a foreign concept to live in tents. So perhaps there was someone listening that didn't understand it quite like that either, and this is to help you out. But these two men were so wealthy that they could not live next to each other because their flocks and their possessions were so great that they were depleting the natural resources of the land around them while being together. And so they agreed to separate. One went east, which usually in a biblical context, going east is away from God, and Abram stayed where he was. So when you see it from a spiritual vantage point, it makes a lot more sense when we find Lot later in the middle of Sodom, which is described as a very wicked city. And he is surrounded by all this wickedness because he put himself there. There's an illustration that is to be seen, for sure. The idea of leaving God's presence as well as staying firm in what God has already said. But we see at the end of chapter 13 that Abram is shown the whole land, everything that his descendants are going to inherit. He says that his descendants are going to be as numerous as the dust of the earth. So it begs the question, who are Abram's descendants? Is it the Jewish people? Or is it Christians? Or is it Arabs? Because like we saw at the end of chapter 16, that his firstborn son was named Ishmael. And Ishmael is the father of all the Arab people. Even today, the Arabs claim Abraham as their ancestor, which makes perfect sense because that is their origin. Their origin is that of Ishmael. So when we see it like that, the Jewish people, the Arabs, and Christians are all his descendants. Physically, it is those two peoples, but when it comes to Christians, he is our spiritual ancestor, because he set a beautiful example for us. In chapter 14, we see some kings go to battle, and they take Lot captive. 
So Abram dispatches his own troops, 318 people, and he went in pursuit of them, and he defeated them. So not only were they skilled, but it really makes you wonder if Abram is not a pushover. Again, growing up, I always imagined Abram as an old man who was just wandering around making decisions. But it makes it look like right here that Abram trained his own people for war. So that would make him a mighty warrior if that were the case. It doesn't clearly state that he trained them in military tactics, but it would make sense if he did. And bear in mind that this was over 4,000 years ago when all this happened. So it's very interesting to see that even cities like Damascus have been around for over 4,000 years. Truly remarkable. And then we're met with a mysterious individual in verse 18. Melchizedek, king of Salem. Salem is the area that would later be called Jerusalem. Salem was a city that is where Jerusalem currently is. Salem, Jerusalem, okay, it's the same thing. What's interesting about Melchizedek is that he is a priest of God, Most High. Where did he come from? How is he a priest in those days? It's very mysterious who the person of Melchizedek is. And some theorize, well, he's a pre-incarnate Christ. No, he's not. And they get that conclusion by what the book of Hebrews says. Because there is a comparison made between Melchizedek and Jesus Christ. But they are not the same person. Melchizedek is a historical person, and he is king of Jerusalem in those days. He is a type of Christ. He typified him, but he is not the Christ. Now, his name means king of righteousness, which is explained in the book of Hebrews. And you see Abram offer 10%, a tithe, of everything that he has. So this is confirmation that Abram acknowledges who he is and acknowledges that he is a true priest of the Lord. So evidently, there was a group of people who knew the true creator God, and they lived in this area called Salem at the time, and they were ruled by a king priest, Melchizedek. Now what's interesting about this and what makes Melchizedek unique is that the Bible usually ascribes three different offices to someone who is in God's service. Prophet, priest, and king. And you usually do not carry more than one office. Now, in the Old Testament, there's only a handful of individuals, such as Melchizedek and King David, who break that mold of having more than one office. But God designed that on purpose, so that Everyone would have a unique role, but we have Melchizedek here, who is both king and priest. And in some ways, Abram is a prophet and a priest. So these men are unique in that fashion. Then when we go to chapter 15, we see God make the covenant with Abram. And if you recall what a covenant is, it is like a contract, where both parties are involved in fulfilling some sort of obligation. So in this case, because Abram obeys God, 
he is going to make him the father of a great nation. And this nation is not the Arab people. They are indeed descendants of Abram, but they are not the chosen people of God. Those are the Jewish people. Now we see in verse 2 that Abram asks God how this is going to happen, because he doesn't have any kids. He has some people that were raised in his house that were not his children, that he has designated as his heir. But God confirms it with him that it is going to be a blood relative that is going to inherit everything that Abram has. He promises that it's going to happen. And like we see at the end of chapter 16, Abram is 86 years old. You would probably say in this time period that's about middle age or in your mid to late 40s in equivalent. Because remember, in this time period, people lived longer. So it wasn't like he was an ancient, frail old man that was having children at this time. He was still of a decent age. But he was promised by God that he was going to have a descendant that came from his own body. And it says that Abram believed God and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. This verse is going to be used plenty in the New Testament to justify the argument of faith versus works, for one, but ultimately the understanding that having faith in God and his promises is one of the means of salvation. Abram here has set the example of how we are to be. Abram took God at his word. And this is before any Bible was written. God's word was not written at this time. And let me remind you that this was hundreds of years before Moses. So the law has not been created yet. And yet, even without all those things, Abram believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. So what is our excuse? Why can't we take God at his word and believe him at face value? We need to be like Abram, and we need to believe God in what he says. If he promised something, we know that he's going to do it. What he has said in his Bible is going to happen or is all true. So we need to understand that the Bible is absolute reality. The world is going to tell you different, but that is because they are blind or because they hate God. Our sinful nature that we are born with prevents us from seeing God as he should be seen. But when he reveals himself to us through his word and through his Holy Spirit, then we see things clearly. There are three different details in this text that is of interest to us when it comes to the covenant between God and Abram. First of all, he says that the land will be his. Secondly, he says that his people will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. So God is describing a future event that he will not see. And obviously, this is during the time of Moses at the Exodus. And the third thing is that God gives a sign to Abram that this is truly going to happen. Because after he cuts these animals in two and puts one on each side of each other, then he causes 
a smoking oven, and a flaming torch to pass between them. Some supernatural event that confirmed that what God was saying is really going to happen. So Abram gets this wonderful promise from God that he is going to do exactly as he says. And we never see any sign of Abram faltering or doubting God for the rest of his life. I wish we could have that kind of certainty for God as well. Now, when we get to chapter 16, we need to understand the cultural context here. What they are doing in this scene is completely legal in their code, as well as completely morally correct in those days. Sarai was not able to have children. And so what often would happen in those days is if you had a slave or a concubine of some kind, then you could give that to your husband so that he could have relations with her to carry on the family line. That is completely legal in those days. And while God does not promote or condone polygamy, he allows it for his good purpose. It is still sin, but God forgives him for it. So after Hagar got pregnant by Abram, there was a shift in the relationship between Hagar and Sarai. Sarai was mistress over Hagar, and Hagar was that of like a slave. But Hagar felt that, well, since you gave me to Abram, we should be more like equals, since we are both his wife now. Why are you still treating me like I'm a slave? Legally, Sarai was correct in what she did, although it's probably best that she didn't treat her harshly. She did have the right over her as a slave, and Hagar fought against that, so she ran away. So while she fled, the Lord found her, and the Lord blessed her by telling her that this son that she was going to give birth to was going to be a great man. And again, he is the father of all the Arab people. Now, it mentions his description of what he's going to be like, and it says that he will be a wild donkey of a man. You would think at first that's an insult. But in those days, there was a wild donkey breed called an onager. And in that culture, it was highly admired and very valuable as an animal. So it was a great compliment for Ishmael to be compared to a wild donkey. And God commands Hagar to go back to Sarai and submit herself to her. And it looks like she does that, because shortly after this, she goes back to Sarai, and she eventually gives birth to Ishmael, and Ishmael lives in the house with Abram and Sarai. But what's also interesting to note is that the location where Hagar met the Lord, she named it after the situation that happened. She named it El Roy, which in the Hebrew means the God that sees. And he does see, doesn't he? And quite honestly, I don't think we always acknowledge how much he sees. He sees everything about you. All the things that you try to hide, all the things you try to justify, all the things that you are ashamed of in yourself, he sees all of them. He sees all the good things you do. He sees all the bad things you do. And what is perhaps the most scary thing of all 
is so often we make decisions and we willfully sin knowing that he watches. Or we try to convince ourselves that he isn't watching. And that's really a shame. So if the reality is that God is always seeing, that should give us motivation to do what is right. We want to please our God. We want to be obedient to him because he is watching what we do. Not out of just fear, but out of love, right? Then we come to Psalm chapter 4. And this particular psalm is a song of trust. David is seeking God's help, and he's warning his enemies to trust in God as well. How interesting is that? Do we ever do that? Do we ever tell opponents in life to trust God? I don't think we ever do, or at least maybe we don't do it enough. But David understands the reality that while evildoers may get away with it right now, they still have to be held in account before God in judgment. And we as Christians know that our eternal destination is secure. Therefore, we should worry less about us and we should be worried about the spiritual state of the people around us. Don't we want to spare as many people from hell as possible? So do we put ourselves in a situation to where we explain that to people? Do we witness and evangelize these people? Do we explain that there is a God, this God sees, right? And he will do something about it if you do not obey him. This is the absolute reality of who God is, and that he is sovereign over his ordered creation. And then we see at the end of the psalm that he is expressing his trust in the Lord, and that the Lord gives him joy, gives him peace, and gives him security. And those are things that the world can really never give us. Those are supernatural attributes. The verse of the day to memorize is going to be Psalm chapter 4, verse 4, which says, Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. When it says tremble, it's talking about having a healthy fear of God. It's not talking about being afraid of him or being a coward, but it is talking about acknowledging who God is, that he is infinitely greater than us, and obeying him by not sinning. God has called us to meditate upon his word, and we should meditate on it in our beds, wherever we go, and just to be calm, to be still, to be at peace, knowing that God is in control and that he is sovereign over everything. Selah in the Psalms simply means it's an interlude to where it'll be instrumental and usually to repeat what was just said. So you don't have to necessarily remember the Salah, but definitely remember the rest. And with that, that's all I have for today. Thank you for listening. I'm Ryan, and we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless you.